Get more of the backstory on our Patreon page with exclusive interviews, outtakes, and the Lost Controversial Backstory Podcast you can only get here. Support on the Backstory Bonus Level. Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Colby Cole. Thank you, everybody, for subscribing and downloading the Backstory Podcast and keep the comments coming, positive and negative. I just appreciate you all taking the time to listen and to give feedback. So let's get into this episode, which is about an artist with exceptional talent who rose to tremendous success in a short amount of time, who almost lost it all, but survived and grew to even more heights. This is the story of Chris Brown. You love being a bad boy, don't you? Sometimes to a degree. Only when it benefits me. If, I, if, it, if it's me being a bad boy and I'm just constantly in trouble, then they, then they can have that. But only if it benefits me. And usually sometimes girls like a bad boy, but when they get around me, they, they eventually see, oh yeah, he's not a real bad boy. They just give him, you know, hell all the time. I had a front row seat to the early years of Chris Brown. And in this podcast, I'll give you his backstory. Now, Chris Brown doesn't do many radio interviews, but I will share segments from two interviews that I did with him. One was early in his career and another a few years after the incident with Rihanna. You will also learn about Chris through the eyes of a few executives that worked directly with him and were a part of his historic success. Chris Brown was a 15-year-old small-town kid who came onto the R&B scene in the early 2000s, unlike any contemporary teen artist in the history of R&B music, with the exception of child star Michael Jackson. He was able to parlay his teen success into adulthood while dealing with and surviving several crises of his own doing. Chris Brown, a kid from a tiny town, a hundred miles from D.C. and an hour away from Richmond, Virginia, called Tappahannock. This cozy working class city of 2,000 people sits on the Rappahannock River. I just wanted to say Tappahannock and Rappahannock because it really sounds cool to say. Chris was a triple threat. He could sing, act, and dance on another level. He came into the game with a tremendous amount of raw talent. His mother was a huge Michael Jackson fan, and he was exposed to Michael Jackson's music and videos growing up. And as a child, he had a lot of energy. In the Chris Brown documentary on Netflix, his mother Joyce talked about his energy and how hard it was for him to spend the night at any relative's house because of how he bounced all around. I first heard about Chris Brown from his manager, Tina Davis, who at the time was an A&R for Def Jam Records. Around 2002, that was when I was just becoming a first-time program director in Philadelphia. So program directors, or for short, PD, when you're a PD, label reps and A&Rs love leaning on your ear to see if they have potentially good products. Radio airplay is a game changer for an artist, especially a new artist. She sent me a cassette tape of a very young and a very raw Chris Brown. But let's dig a little bit deeper and learn more about Chris. His path to success started when he was around 13 on a fluke. A few guys that were looking for talent stopped at a local gas station in Tappahannock, which happened to be owned by Chris's father. And they asked him, did he know of any talent? And of course, Chris's father said, my son, Chris Brown. They eventually met and were very impressed with Chris and put a demo tape together. The demo was brought to the attention of Tina Davis, who again at the time was an A&R Def Jam, 
and she immediately brought him to the label president at that time, which was L.A. Reed. Reed loved Chris and wanted to sign him. So, as the story goes, during the negotiation period for Chris Brown, because other labels were involved, Tina Davis lost her job due to restructuring at the label. Chris, who trusted Tina, asked her to be his manager. She accepted and then started to shop him to other labels, all the while Def Jam thought they were going to sign him. What you need to know about Tina is that she's a connector. For instance, there was once this struggling singer who was also an amazing writer. He had just written a number one song for Mario called Let Me Love You, which, by the way, will be a theme in this podcast. There's another connection to that song. The writer of that song and struggling singer was Neo. Tina knew him and arranged a meeting with L.A. Reid and Jay-Z, and they signed him as an artist to Def Jam. Tina is a creative energy connector. And by the way, currently Tina is the head of A&R for Empire Records. So newly unemployed Tina Davis, who knew she had something at her old label, reached out to music industry veteran Mark Pitts, who at the time was A&R for Jive. Now, Mark is currently the president of Urban Music for RCA Records and led the creative team behind the success of artists like Miguel, of course, Chris Brown, who we're talking about, Usher, Sierra, TLC, Anthony Hamilton, CeeLo Green, and so many more. Tina brought Mark a video of Chris Brown, and Mark liked him, but he wasn't sure of the music. At that time, Jive was coming off the tremendous success of teenagers Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake, who had tremendous solo success. And Chris liked what Jive was doing, especially on the pop side, and he really wanted to sign with them. Larry Kahn, who is currently the senior vice president of urban promotions for Interscope Records, but in the 90s and the early 2000s was a senior vice president at Jive Records, talks about his first impressions of Chris Brown. It was 2005. We had just finished our first merger with Arista, and we were getting to know Usher and Outkast and Anthony Hamilton and... Uh, we heard about this, you know, great new signing that Mark Pitts, uh, that Mark Pitts had signed. Mm-hmm. This kid from I don't even remember the name of the town of Virginia, Tappahannock. Tappahannock. And we went down somewhere in, into Virginia. I don't remember if it was Norfolk or Richmond to meet him. They wanted me to meet him, mm-hmm. and um, Tina was there, and Mark was there. And, you know, after listening to music and just vibing with him and watching him like rock around the studio and dance around the studio, I definitely remember having that feeling like, oh, yeah, this kid is born for this. Another industry veteran who has worked with Chris Brown from the beginning and still works with him today is Samantha Selloway, who worked her way up the ladder at Jive and transitioned over to RCA when they merged. And she is now the senior vice president of urban promotion at RCA. I used her government name, but everybody in the industry finally knows her as Baby Sam, the hype beast. What up, Sam? She talks about her first impressions of Chris Brown. My first impression of Chris was when I first laid eyes on him. He was tall, giddy, funny, 15-year-old that was hyper, energetic, bouncing off the walls, fidgety, couldn't keep his hands from drawing or tagging or marking up something. He was always dancing. So when I first met him, I said, yo, we are about to have a lot of fun with this kid. He's something kind of special. He's a little different. And um, and he was fun. The first time that I really got a chance to just sit and talk to him was really we, we hadn't put out a record yet. And I was talking to him and I was asking him, you know, Chris, what do you want to do? And how do you want to infiltrate 
this music business and he was just like, you know, I know what I want to do. When I first started, you know, I was in high school and um, and I was a rapper, but none of the rappers were really pulling girls. And I just really want to pull girls. So now you're starting to get a little bit of a buzz of early Chris Brown. He had a choice to make, Def Jam or Jive. The legend himself, L.A. Reid, really wanted Chris Brown on Def Jam. And he had Jive Arista artist Usher, who was a protege of L.A., give Chris a call. In the Netflix documentary about Chris Brown, Usher talks about that conversation. According to Usher, it was no pressure on where to go. Chris was just excited to get a chance to talk to Usher, who was somebody else that he admired at that time as an artist. So let me just paint the picture about Jive at that time. They were coming off the tremendous success of teen acts Britney Spears, the Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, then a superstar solo career from NSYNC lead singer Justin Timberlake. I don't know this for a fact, but Chris had to be impressed with what Jive was doing, especially on the pop side. And remember, he was a huge Michael Jackson super fan. And the entire Jive Pop lineup were all superstars. He was mimicking Michael Jackson his entire childhood, and I'm sure he wanted that pop success similar to what Mike had, so he decided to sign at Jive. Here's Larry Kahn talking about Chris Brown's pop dreams. He wanted to be an all-format uh, an all-format superstar, and clearly, you know, he had he had the chops and the skills to do it. And yes, at that time, we were coming off, um, you know, Jive was kind of built on R&B music and rap music, and then we kind of expanded out into Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears, and NSYNC. Uh, I don't even think Justin was solo yet at that mm-hmm. point. And here's Baby Sam on why he chose Jive. Um, I'm never really too sure. You know, I definitely don't want to speak out of turn because that's something that I'm not super privy to. But in my assessment of the whole situation had always been, you know, his his manager at the time was working at Def Jam, but she was no longer at Def Jam. And when she left, um, she had obviously set him up with a bunch of different meetings. And, um, and when he came to Jive Records, Mark Pitts, who would work with people like Usher, probably made Chris feel a little bit more comfortable that this is a label that would understand how to transition somebody who started off very young. You know, Usher started off when he was 12, 13 years old. So here's Chris, a 15, 16 year old coming into the game. He would have felt a little bit more comfortable dealing with a label that understand how to transition young male R&B singers and turning them into older male R&B singers and still having a very successful career doing it. Chris Brown was now the latest artist on Jive Records, and the Jive team was eager to unleash him on the world. Here's Baby Sam again talking about the label's initial approach with Chris. The label's approach to promoting Chris was very simple. It was organic grassroots. Literally, it was turning one person a fan at a time. He started doing small mall tours. We were in the smallest markets. We would have him do these little performances in front of um, one of like the big chain stores, whether it was like Belk or something like that. And he would do two shows throughout the weekend. And the way that we approached it was really at that time in 2005, we didn't have social media. Our social media was 106 and Park, videos and things of that nature. We always knew that Chris was really visual. It was very creative. Um, his own concepts himself, we knew that we had somebody who understood how to translate that visual to um, to his kind of an audience. So clearly he became a 106 and Park darling. As we, we shipped out the single, his first single, we went market by market. We would take him to radio stations. We would do shows. And this was really like that first 
groundswell of artists that were um, that were creating these fans. And this was really the birth of Team Breezy. They were creating these fans. You know, they saw them on 106 and Park in the video. So our approach was really a grassroots going neighborhood to neighborhood, city to city, market to market. And Chris was everywhere. So once he was signed, Chris lived in the studio working with great young producers like Scott Storch, who happened to be a Philly kid who was an early member of the Roots crew. Now, the cool thing about Scott Storch was, yes, he was a part of the Roots crew, but he left them, went to L.A. to work under Dr. Dre. His first major song working with Dr. Dre was still D.R.E. from the 2001 album from Dr. Dre, which came out in 1999, if that makes any sense. But we like to call this album The Chronic 2. And by the time we get to the early 2000s, Scott was on fire as a producer. He had a huge success in 2004 with the iconic track from Fat Joe's Terror Squad, Lean Back. He also produced Baby Boy, Naughty Girl, and Me, Myself, and I from Beyonce's debut album which helped catapult Beyonce as a solo artist. So anyway, back to Scott Storch. Scott also had other big songs at that time, including Candy Shop and Little Bit from 50 Cent's second album. Scott also produced the number one smash, Let Me Love You from Mario. See, I told you there was kind of a theme with that song. So Let Me Love You from Mario is a combination of Mario, Scott Storch, and Neo. Those three combined to make that record, and that record is timeless. So Scott Storch was the go-to producer in 2004, and he was commissioned to do several tracks on Chris's debut album, including Run It. Larry Kahn talks about that first single. I clearly remember the energy around the building. There was a lot of pressure that we have to break this record, that we have to we have to break this kid. I clearly remember that we went urban and rhythm. We went for attacking uh, urban and rhythm at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I clearly remember, that because it wasn't my station, mm-hmm. that the first really big major station to stamp it mm-hmm. was Cube in Seattle. Wow. And I remember feeling intimidated by that because it, that clearly was a crossover station. Right, that, and they were looking was, for you to break it. Yes, yeah. yes. How so so the, pressure was, the pressure was really on. You bring Chris into a room, and I don't, you know, to this day, and I've seen this phenomenon, you know, a, a number of times mm-hmm. in, in my career, I don't quite know what to call it. If, if it's a twinkle in their eye, if it's the energy, there's kind of a, a no-fear, happy attitude that these stars have. And Chris clearly had that, and he clearly was able to convey it to everybody we, we, we took him to meet. Run It went platinum and was number one, not just on the R&B charts, but number one on the Hot 100 charts. Not bad for a debut single. The world was now introduced to this kid who was not only a good singer, but he was an amazing dancer. That particular song and Chris Brown resonated with teenage girls around the world. The video was an introduction of a young, handsome, fresh-faced kid who could dance unlike many of the artists out at that time. Chris Brown was an immediate star. Now, again, I knew about Chris early because Tina would send me cassette tapes and ask me my opinion of him before he even got signed. So... When he was ready to hit the road, I embraced him and gave him one of his first interviews. I remember the first time I met him and his mother, Joyce, was on the road with him early on. He was just 16 and just coming out and had so much energy. Run It took on a life of its own. 
I immediately booked him on my back-to-school concert in the fall of 2005. Also at that time, there was an R&B singer on Def Jam. She was new to the game, just like Chris was new to the game. But she ended up having more of a reality TV career than a music career, and her name was Tierra Marie. She had a hot song out, too, but it wasn't on the level of Run It. I had them both perform on my back-to-school show in Philly in the fall of 2005. I had automatically scheduled Chris to close the show because I knew the energy he would bring would just be off the charts. Tierra's team was kind of insulted. They insisted that she close. Now, as a program director, I really hate this part of the job, managing egos. I can tell you a million stories about artists wanting to finish shows or not wanting to finish shows or not wanting people to be in front of them and not wanting to go after certain people. It's like a juggling act. And then you add into that that artists are late all the time. It can become a nightmare. So anyway, I went to both Tina and I went to Chris and I explained the situation. They were so cool. The one thing I remember about Chris more than anything at that time was he was so humble. He was just a nice kid. Like, he just made me feel like he was my little brother. So I would be like big bro to him when I would talk to him. And they were so cool and so laid back. And frankly, they was like, okay, fine. I'll go on first and she can close. So Chris hits the stage and shuts it down, then announces at the end that he'll be signing autographs in the back of the room. Tierra goes on next. And it's 40 to 50 girls watching her, but in the back of the room, there were 500 girls in line to get an autograph from Chris. I get a laugh at that one. His star ascended so quickly. I had never really seen anything like that up until that point in my career. Later that fall, on November 25th, 2005, Chris Brown released his self-titled debut album. It sold 154,000 albums in the first week, which is unheard of for an R&B singer, but a kid R&B singer, that was a big deal. Fueled by Run It, of course, and his second single, Yo, Excuse Me, Miss, which was produced by some Philly guys named Dre and Vidal. Now, let me tell you something about Dre and Vidal. Their first big break came when they produced a song for Michael Jackson. Yeah, I said that correctly. Two kids from Philly who love music ended up becoming producers, and they helped resurrect Michael Jackson's career in 2001 with a song called Butterfly, which was also written by Marsha Ambrosius from Floetry. You got to hear them tell the story of doing a song with Michael Jackson. Dre and Vidal also produced Poppin' on the Chris Brown album. Now, some of the other tracks on the debut album that really got people's attention was Gimme That and Say Goodbye, which ended up becoming another pop hit. This debut album was an immediate success. Just from the energy I was getting from him, Chris was a super creative. The energy was off the charts. And at such a young age, he would direct several of his videos, including the video for Gimme That, which featured Lil Wayne, who was ascending himself on the rap side. In 2013, when I interviewed Chris, he talked about directing Fine, which was like his version of Smooth Criminal, a Michael Jackson mini movie, which was a classic. Here's Chris Brown on directing. How I think as far as being a director sometimes or trying to be creative, I don't want to incorporate it. As far as Moon Walker, I would definitely say Moon Michael Jackson has set the tone for being able to be a, a great entertainer and, and and achieve anything you want as an entertainer. So I think for me being on, on behind the camera and in front of the camera on this one, I'll be able to shift and make a different version of how my fans and how my audience will perceive it. So they'll be able to see the, they'll be able to see the crazy dancing, maybe martial arts, you know, uh, acrobatics. Parkour, different stuff, but also the theatrical side, the first year stuff, Frank Sinatra, all that stuff that brings 
uh, old classical, you know, back in the day stuff to them. Here's Larry Kahn talking about the initial success of Chris. I think we were all, I, I think we knew the potential there. So we were all, we were all very focused. We all really believed. But any time in this business, your new artist has a number one on three formats on the first single is is a is a gift. As much as we believed in him, that's a stunning way to kind of start the party. Again, his success was unprecedented. Here's Baby Sam talking about the instant fame of Chris Brown. And was it surprising to them at Jive? Um, Chris's initial success wasn't a surprise to us, only because, like I said earlier, Chris worked for it. Um, here's an artist that when we needed them to show up, whether it was a show for a radio, um, for press, when they were doing um, touring or things of that nature, Chris was everywhere and he was making himself accessible to his audience, to his direct fans. He was connecting to a group of, at that time, early Team Breezy, the day one Team Breezy's. He was literally building a tsunami, a mob. He was building um, what is Team Breezy today. So, as we continue to grow him, and when I say grow, this is somebody who we shipped out a record at radio, and we had to convince gatekeepers. We had to convince people who initially didn't see him as a success story. They didn't see him as a superstar. And, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. A lot of people will always say, oh, I knew he was a star from, from the gate, but, you know. It took us a while. It took us a long while to work a record and turn it into a number one um, single with Run It. But it was station after station. Once they started to see the response and they started to see him deliver, um, you know, you have an artist who can have a great song. Here was an artist who had a good song with Run It, but when he came into the market, he could actually perform the song. He sang live, and as he was singing, he was dancing. As he was dancing, he was shooting girls with that killer smile that they just loved, and they would swoon and all of that. So you had all of these elements that were creating this superstar, and it was city to city, market by market, fan by fan, they all gravitated towards him. So, no, I don't think I was ever really surprised as his, at his um, success. I'll keep mentioning this, but Chris was just such an amazing dancer. I remember at a VMA performance he had early in his career, the camera panned to Justin Timberlake after that, and Justin couldn't believe how good a dancer his label mate was. In this moment at the VMAs, you'll have to Google it to see Justin Timberlake, what he was saying, but he was just blown away because it was really – a phenomenal performance. I mentioned earlier that Chris was a triple threat. He could dance, he could sing, he can act, but he could also paint. He was a really good artist too. I'm telling you, the guy was just super talented and he designed many of his album covers. I asked him in that interview in 2013 about art. Well, art for me is just like an outlet. So a lot of times I don't try to capitalize off of it by getting money or anything because it comes from the heart is natural. So like I go and paint a lot or if I collab with another painter, usually we'll, we'll um, donate all that to either my charity, um, the Symphonic Love Foundation, or like I'll donate to mutual charities like I just did a 24-foot canvas uh, like maybe a week and a half ago, mm -hmm. and we're going to cut it into four pieces. So when we cut it into four pieces, there's, um, two is going to go into Elton John's you know, foundation for AIDS, and then my other two are going to my foundation. So every time I, I just paint, I just do it to be creative, and 
to inspire my other audiences or whoever likes paint. And that's just another hobby I love to do. So let's get back to the aftermath of Chris's debut album. During that time, I was working with the Philadelphia 76ers, helping them to book post-game concerts. Now, I asked Chris early on if he'd be willing to do a game. And when I asked him, he wasn't the superstar that he became, but it really happened so quickly. But he still made the commitment to me to do that show. It was January 9th, 2006. The Sixers were playing the Seattle Supersonics. Remember them? Of course, the Seattle Supersonics are now the OKC Thunder. It was a cold Monday night in January, a few days into the year, and I had Chris Brown perform after a Sixers game. I would do these post-game shows with the station and the 76ers on less desirable games. And I was cool with the GM of the 76ers at that time named Billy King. And usually when we would do these type of events, it would be around like 2,000 people or less that would hang out after the game for a performance. I remember them calling me and telling me that they don't usually sell this many tickets for a Monday night game in January. They had a ridiculous walk up that night. And Chris performed for over 10,000 people after the game. Keep in mind, it's a Monday night in January, it's a school night, and folks stayed till like 10, 30, 11 o'clock to see this boy perform. Even Chris in that moment was so surprised by the size of the crowd. Later that spring, I get a call from Chris Brown on my show. On this day in May of 2007, it was a week past his 17th birthday, he had just found out that he had gotten several BET Award nominations. For a kid from rural Virginia, this is a major deal. He was so excited. In this interview, he is just returning from Europe, and he talks about his fame and the money and how blessed he feels. He also talks about his cars. He talks about life on the road, his experiences with girls, and the development of his next phase, which would be more sexual. This is a week after his 17th birthday in May of 2007. Oh, man! You! What up, man? How you been, man? I'm good. I just came back from France. Oh, let me tell you something, Chris Brown. Do you remember... <laughs> Last August, you came up into the studio with me, and you were sitting here, and I sat across from you, and I said, man, you about to blow up something huge. Yeah, you told me. I was believing you, too. Yeah, because remember, like, you had, your video wasn't really out yet, and all the girls was just calling up and going crazy? Yeah. And now, what you at, two million now? <laughs> something like that. Wow. <laughs> and, and the videos is crazy. Yo, man, congratulations, man. We're so proud of you here in Philadelphia, man. Thank you, man. Y'all y'all the one that supported my record first, though. Today you find out you get three BET nominations, Best Male R&B Singer, Best New Artist, and Viewer's Choice for Yo, Excuse Me, Miss. How did that feel today you get your first artist nominations for an award? Man, my heart was pounding out of my chest. <laughs> So I was just, I was just really excited. I just wanted to be uh, like out there as an artist. I, I really, I really want to like thank BT because they, they, that, that like really showed me that they appreciate me. Now, um, are you going to perform on the BET Awards? Hopefully, they, it isn't etched in stone yet, but I hope, hopefully, I can get on stage and perform. Did you direct the video for Give Me That? Yep. Oh, you a bad boy, man. <laughs> you a bad boy. Me and Eric White, like the whole concept and idea was mine. Then, like Eric White put some of his his um, visual techniques into it, and then from there, I got behind the camera and told him what shots I wanted and stuff like that. You did a great man, and that's a great video. Thank and you. Uh, how would you? How do you feel like at this point? Because it really hasn't been a year since you've been out, and yet you have like had so much success. Have you felt it yet? Yeah, I felt it. I feel it now. Like as like my recognition builds. Like, even in France, people are starting to come up to me, and it's starting to be swarms of people taking pictures. And so now it's like, wow, I'm actually fulfilling my dream. And 
Just feeling that path that God put me on. Did you hear what Mary J. Blige said about you the other day? Nah. She said that um, you are her, like one of her favorite artists right now. She puts your album on blast like like continuously. Oh dang, that's well, that's more pop to Mary. I love Mary. Like she's the queen. So if I mm-hmm. get if I get the um, the uh, the say so and the and the green light from Mary, I know I'm doing something good. And now you go from opening up tours to on tour this coming summer, man. Oh yeah. Now, now tell everybody what's the name of this tour and who's going to be on it. Up close and personal, me, Little Wayne, with Joel Santana, the Franchise Boys, and Neo. Mm. It's going to be it's going to be a great great tour because we got a lot of lot of hits on that tour, a lot of lot of great songs that everybody going to have fun with. Everybody can relax and rock with and have a good time. One of the things that I like to ask artists, especially after tremendous success, is how do they treat themselves? You know, what do they do with the money that they were making? So I asked Chris about what kind of car he was driving. You know what? Like I was pressed on getting the range, but now like what I did to my car, I got it. I got it souped up. I got I got the Lamborghini doors on the Expedition. I got it uh-huh. custom painted. I got the I got the 18 inch subwoofers, four 18 inch subwoofers in the back. Uh-huh. I got the whole back seat. It's and it's like a whole red carpet. I got like uh, seven thousand watts of amps in the back. Like I got a, a big old like big old boom box in the back of my car. Crazy. Okay. So when do you get a chance to enjoy your whip? Because you you're always on the road. When I get a break, I really just. I really look at it like, oh, wow, I get to drive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's funny because um, in the beginning of Give Me That, he says a 16-year-old sensation. You're 17 now because you had your birthday last week. Yeah. So how's it feel, man, to be 17 and on top of the world? It's, it's more it's more a lot of lives than just being on top of the world because 17 is just another age. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to me, I'm, it's never. By, by the time next album come around, I'll be 18. By the next, so I, it'll be more in depth with with um. Sexual topics, but not saying it's gonna be sex. Talking about sex, it's okay. gonna be more. It's gonna be a, like in depth with deeper subjects. Talking about deeper relationships, having more fun with what I'm singing. Now with the BET Awards coming up, you know you gotta perform. You just gotta make it happen, dog. Yeah, I, I gotta try to. I gotta try to come in and perform because I know we got Kanye performing, Mary J. Um, like I think I think Missy's gonna be off the chain. No, you gotta. You gotta. You just gotta demand that you perform. You Chris Brown now, man. <laughs> Come on, dog. Like it ain't you. You Chris Brown now, so you can say, you know what? I I need to perform. And now, also, Chris, um, in regards to um, just the touring and all that, you got a lot of fans now. You got a lot of people that are coming at you. Like, what's the wildest thing so far in the past year that a fan has done? I think we were on a House of Blues tour, right? Uh huh. And I had a rap bus, but I had a bus that I got, that I stayed on. I think by the end of the tour, the whole rap bus was covered from the front window to the back of the bus. And the tires included with phone numbers, pictures, uh, graffiti, everything. Wow. So do you have a girlfriend now, Chris? Nope, not at all. So you single? Yeah, a lot of a lot of rumors been spread. I've been hearing a lot of rumors about a couple of girls out there, but I, I don't really be I don't really be messing with them girls. Oh, so you're not messing with Christina Milian no more? C- Christina Milian? Yeah. That was the rumor? Yeah. Dang, I wish I was. <laughs> Shoot, I, wish I, I, ain't, I ain't hear that rumor. That would have that been dope. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> nah, but, but, like, it was a couple of rumors. Like, I heard something about me and Rihanna. I was hearing a whole bunch of that. It was asking me that. Well, you don't want like, her. She's unfaithful, dog. You don't want to mess with her, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, no, but like I'm very much so single. I'm looking, I'm looking for that special lady, that individual, that that uh, that certain lady that catches my eye. Yeah, whatever. Please. <laughs> oh wow, that's funny. Well, Chris, I want to thank you so much for checking in, man. And uh, when the next time you come through uh, town, you got to come and hang out. I'm very proud of you. And the one thing I can say um, that your mom and Tina 
have done a great job, and you have as well as being humble, man. You still humble and still hold on to that humbleness because a lot of these artists, man, they get caught up in the success and they lose a lot of people, man. They lose you. All right. Definitely. Thank you. Nice talking to you, Cole. No doubt, man. Congrats. All right, for sure. His debut album went on to sell 3 million copies worldwide. Within two years, he started as an opener on the very popular Black Teen Act Scream Tour, which was built on the backs of Bow Wow, who was another teen artist with a huge following at that time. Two months later, co-headlining his own tour up close and personal. From my vantage point, watching how quickly his career exploded and personally knowing the team around him, it was really sky's the limit. Now, in these early years, I did a bunch of interviews with Chris, or he would just kind of check in with me. And his fans would stalk my show, and I would arrange several events around Chris for listeners to interact with him. During the Chris Brown era, I would use tickets and meet and greets as passes when we would speak to students. We would always do these presentations, and I would tell the young people to make sure that they paid attention because I had prizes to see Chris Brown. I really wanted them to absorb what we were telling them, and I knew if I would use tickets and meet and greet passes that they would really pay attention and they would absorb the messages. It was a win-win situation. Because of my relationship with the label and my relationship with Chris's management, I would always get extra tickets and extra meet and greet passes, so I'd always reward certain students I would come across who maybe had challenges or maybe needed some incentive to get good grades. Sometimes I knew teachers that I went to college with, people that I went to school with that were teachers would say, man, I got this student. Can you help me out and get me some Chris Brown tickets? Because I really want to give them this incentive. And I had no problem doing that. I was all for helping young people out because I remember growing up nobody was doing that for me so I figured hey man this is the right thing to do many of these students that I'm talking about and when I was giving out these tickets are all grown now they're out of school and adults parents themselves and every once in a while over the years I will come across one of them and they'll pull me aside to tell me a Kobe Cole Chris Brown story Sometimes you don't realize the impact you're having through small gestures. I was at the Roots Picnic in Philly last summer, and I came across this young lady named Kim, whom I spoke at her school, and I gave her tickets to uh, the Chris Brown tour, and I allowed her to meet him backstage. Here is her Chris testimony. So 10 years ago, you had me meet Chris Brown. I was a crazy Chris Brown fan. This is like when he first came out. And you got me to meet him at his upcoming personal tour about like 10 years ago. And I will never forget that because I was a big fan. And thank you so much still. I think I do. I don't know. Coming from this small town to the world stage in such a short amount of time is a lot for anyone to manage. But for a 17-year-old, I'm sure it was tough. He started working on his second album in 2007. The second album for an artist after a very successful debut is so hard to pull off. They call it sophomore jinx. There are so many one-album wonders in music, so the pressure on the second album is immense for any artist, but for an 18-year-old, it had to be tough to navigate. On November 6, 2007, two years after his debut album, Chris unleashed his sophomore project exclusive, featuring the hit Wall to Wall and Kiss Kiss, which was his second number one R&B record. Keep in mind, Chris has pop star dreams, and his mid-tempo song, With You, produced by Stargate, was the vehicle to reinforce his presence on the pop side. Stargate were a production team from Norway. They had been around for years, but in 2006, they came onto the production scene with several big records. Their partnership with Neo as a songwriter helped launch his solo career. So in 2006, this is what Stargate produced. 
So Sick from Neo, which was a number one record. Sexy Love from Neo, which was a top ten record. Unfaithful from Rihanna, which was a top six pop record. Uh, and one of Beyonce's biggest singles ever, Irreplaceable, which was a number one song on the pop charts and a number one song on the R&B charts. In 2007, they produced Because of You from Neo, which was number two on the pop charts. They also produced the classic Beautiful Liar from Beyonce and Shakira, which went number three on the pop charts. And they produced the massive hit Don't Stop the Music from Rihanna, which was number two on the pop charts. A few other songs they produced that year, Hate That I Love You from Rihanna and Can't Help But Wait from Trey Songs. They had the touch, not just on the pop side, but also on the urban side. One of my all-time favorite songs they produced was Go On Girl with Neo. The following year, he did a duet with American Idol winner Jordan Sparks called No Air, which rose to number three on the pop charts. Another notch for Chris. He was beloved by his legion of fans. His reputation was the boy next door. So going back to the first interview I played a few minutes ago, you heard a young, excited Chris Brown just learning the entertainment industry. And he talked about the rumors of him and Christina Milian. Um, and then we talked about Rihanna. So let me tell you a little backstory on Rihanna and Chris. The first time they met was in 2005. Rihanna and Tierra Marie introduced Chris at the Vibe Awards that year. Wow, remember the Vibe Awards? In 2007, they performed a back-to-back set on the Video Music Awards. He did a ridiculous dancing performance to Wall to Wall. And then Rihanna comes on after him to do her chart-topping smash umbrella. Rumors started to rumble about them dating. In 2008, they were public with their relationship. And for her fans and for his fans, it was a hot topic. So that year, they vacationed together in Barbados, and the pictures of them playing in the pool went viral. So keep in mind, there was Jay-Z and Beyonce, who had been married a few years earlier. They were like the veteran married superstars of hip-hop and R&B. And then there was Chris and Rihanna, and some people labeled it Kriana. It was like the younger version, and they dubbed them the prince and princess of R&B. It made for gossip, but they were in love, and a lot of people liked it. It was just cute that these two young up-and-coming artists were dating. Now, young love can be cute. But Young Love can also be a lit stick of dynamite. And in early 2009, things exploded for Kriana. There are varying explanations on what caused the blow up. But on February 8th, 2009, Chris and Rihanna attended the annual Clive Davis pre-Grammy party. And at some point, things went south between them at the party. So they abruptly leave together and in the car start to argue and it got physical. Chris assaulted Rihanna in the car. She was badly injured. In that moment, Chris Brown, the boy next door, was arrested and charged with felony assault, and his image was forever changed. He was very apologetic to Rihanna and publicly admitted he made a mistake. Chris pled guilty and managed not to get jail time, but he was sentenced to five years of probation in addition to counseling and community service. Meanwhile, the backlash on his career was swift. Many radio stations banned his music, and as the months went on, his reputation continued to suffer. So, Chris, recognizing that things weren't going so well for his career, released an apology video explaining what happened and how he was sorry. I am very sad and very ashamed of what I've done. My mother and my spiritual teachers have taught me way better than that. I have told Rihanna countless times, and I'm telling you today, that I'm truly, truly sorry and that I wasn't able to handle the situation both differently and better. I recognize that I've truly been blessed. I've been blessed with a wonderful family, 
wonderful friends and fans. God has been generous in giving me the ability which has brought me fame and fortune. I've done a lot of soul searching and over the past several months, I've talked with my minister and my mother and I spent a lot of time trying to understand what happened and why. I've let a lot of people down and I realized that and no one is more disappointed in me than I am. As many of you know, I grew up in a home where there was domestic violence. And I saw firsthand what uncontrolled rage could do. I have sought and I'm continuing to seek help to ensure that what occurred in February can never happen again. And as I sit here today, I can tell you that I will do everything in my power to make sure that it never happens again. And I promise that. What I did was unacceptable, 100%. I can only ask and pray that you forgive me, please. Later that fall, Chris released his first single, I Can Transform You, from the Graffiti album. The response was underwhelming to this album. It was definitely too soon for him to come out. The graffiti album creatively was his weakest. It was just okay, and there is nothing okay about Chris Brown. Also during this time period, Michael Jackson died, and this hit Chris hard. They had actually interacted a few times, and I'm sure it was a lifelong dream to meet Michael Jackson. But then when Michael Jackson died, there was one artist that could give a dance tribute to Michael Jackson, unlike anybody else, and that would be Chris Brown. The death of Michael Jackson hit Chris hard, but due to his situation with Rihanna, he wasn't called upon. Again, he was a super fan of Michael Jackson, totally inspired by Michael Jackson. He probably didn't even have to practice any of Michael Jackson's routines. It's said that time heals all wounds. The following year... At the 2010 BET Awards, Chris did a Michael Jackson salute for all the world to see. I got to commend Stephen Hill from BET because there was a lot of pressure on him not to put Chris on that show. People were just very upset about what happened between Chris and Rihanna, and they wanted him totally banned. But Stephen Hill didn't see it that way and gave Chris this opportunity. So Chris performs Remember the Time, Smooth Criminal, Billie Jean, including the famous Moonwalk, and then he does Man in the Mirror. The performance was amazing. You got to go back to YouTube and try to pull this performance up. It was crisp and detailed, unlike any of the other salutes that had happened previously for Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson's a hard artist to salute, especially just the combo of the dance and singing and all that. But Chris Brown nailed it. Then, while singing Man in the Mirror, it was like the previous 18 months of stress, anxiety, depression exploded on screen for the world to see. You don't really see this with an artist because they're so protective of their image. But Chris Brown breaks down and cries on stage while singing Man in the Mirror. He's crying uncontrollably. You can Google this and see it. And the audience warmly cheers him on. It was an important moment for him in the comeback. The incident where Rihanna changed Chris. He no longer did interviews. He wasn't used to being on a defensive, and he couldn't grasp the total backlash he was getting because it would come from all over. See, in America, we love to build people up, only to tear them down, then to build them back up again. But when the tearing down happens, many never come back from that. He was guilty as charged, and he knew it, but it wasn't easy for people to forgive. His fan base was loyal, and Team Breezy kept him optimistic. It was right around this time he did a mixtape with up-and-coming rapper Tyga and put out a song called Deuces. This was Chris being unapologetic about who he was and how he felt about people that were against him. Two fingers, deuces. It was the story of a guy in a relationship who was tired of all the drama and he chucks the deuces. Some say this was his breakup song to Rihanna, but the song was a number one R&B smash his first in four years, and it was a top 10 pop record. The song was hot, and it was authentic, 
and he, Chris Brown, was being himself again. The comeback was happening in real time. Later that year, Chris starred alongside the late Paul Walker, Idris Elba, T.I., and the action movie Takers. This was well-received, and he started working on music. Social media was now the thing, and Chris would express his feelings, but also see how others felt about him. But he was unapologetic. There would unfortunately be a few incidents along the way, including um, some sort of altercation that happened in Washington, D.C. with a fan that put Chris in jail for several months. You see, Chris was no longer the boy next door. He was more like a bad boy now. In the next few minutes, you'll continue to hear clips from my 2013 interview with Chris. Now, this was after all the drama. Again, he wasn't doing many interviews, but due to our history together, he was okay with me talking to him. And I asked him about his bad boy reputation. If, I, if, it, if it's me being a bad boy and I'm just constantly in trouble, then they, then they can have that. But only if it benefits me. And usually sometimes girls like a bad boy. But when they get around me, they, they eventually see, oh, yeah, he's not a real bad boy. They just give him, you know. In 2011, Chris released his fourth album, Fame, with the lead single, Look At Me Now, featuring Lil Wayne and Busta Rhymes. It wasn't an R&B record. It was a hip-hop record, again, showing how talented Chris Brown was. The song was another number one monster record for Chris. Another song in that album, She Ain't You, which featured a sample of Michael Jackson's Human Nature, was another big record. And on February 12, 2012, three years exactly after the infamous moment with Rihanna, Chris was welcomed back to the Grammy stage, and he won R&B Album of the Year. And he was back in a good place. I asked him, who was the real Chris Brown? For everybody that that meets me and can actually have have even a two-second conversation with me, you'll know a genuine person, you'll know who I am. And, you know, for me, it's not my goal to walk around. Everybody's going to have haters. Everybody's going to have people that's going to say whatever it is. My job is to only continuously make them upset. (laughs) Like the people who hate and the people who are mad at me, my job is to continue to do what I'm doing and make them even more mad. I love making them mad. It's it's, it's amazing to me because the people who love me know that it's genuine and everything that I'm doing is trying to uplift everybody into a positive, positive way. And, you know, just hopefully really make our world a real better place. If we all can start, it don't start from me. It's not, it, it, you know, it, I didn't, I didn't build the world, but hopefully, I can at least start to change and be one of those people who want to make a difference for our youth in the future. A lot of people don't know that Chris is very charitable to many causes. Early on in his career, he was a supporter of the St. Jude's Hospital in Memphis, and he donated proceeds from his tour and volunteered with them. I mentioned earlier his love for art, and I asked him about his philanthropic organization, Symphonic Love. Well, you know. Symphonic Love Foundation, basically to help like inner city kids or just kids in general, the stuff that I went through as a kid or, you know, being able to have a role model or have somebody to help out those people in need, either with disabilities or sick, you know, anything. And just show show the kids and show everything that I'm doing. Even if I went through the biggest negative in my life, that's not who I am, you know. The, the same person I am is the person who wants everybody to be able to have some sort of honor and, and integrity within themselves and creativity. So... That's why within my music, within my art, within me giving back, I just want people to see that they can do it as well. To the fullest capacity, they can be great and they can can achieve their goals and aspirations. Chris continued to release several more albums over the past five years. Back on top, I asked him any lessons learned from all that he went through. Uh, For me, it's still still a struggle. You know, it's not not a... 
everything's not peaches and cream all the time. But you know, I'm I'm just thankful for where I'm at. I'm not. It's not even more of a, of a surprise. It's just that I'm thankful to be able to still be able to do my music and put a smile on people's faces, and then take care of anybody that's with me. Take care of my mom. Take, you know, being able to do this stuff that as a as a young guy, 23, 24 years old, most guys don't even have this thing. They worrying about college tuition, or they worrying about papers, exams, and all this other stuff about themselves. I have a bigger responsibility to the world and to my my immediate family and, and the people that I care about. So, you know, the biggest lessons that I learned that I have to use my head because my whatever decision I make affects everybody else. It doesn't just affect me. So that's the only thing that I had to would have to really know and learn. And so I'm just looking forward to being more positive. We are now 13 years into Chris Brown's career. Baby Sam on his longevity. The key to Chris's longevity is a few things. Chris is a very hard worker. And the key to his success has always been the fact that he never stops. He never, never stops and never stops, not in just the music, but in his creation. He creates all the time. And the one thing that that kid has always believed in is himself. Very much so from day one, there was never any question. He never doubted himself. So I think that's definitely the key to his success. Thank you, baby Sam. That is the story of Chris Brown. Thank you all for listening to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Kobe Colbs. Special thanks to baby Sam, Larry Kahn, Chris Brown, and DJ One Plus Two. Coming up on the next Backstory Podcast, The Roots. Yo, dig it, The Roots. Um, we got an album that's coming out on Remedy Records and... In some weeks, like maybe five, six weeks. You gonna have a single first, or you just yeah, know what else? Uh, the single is called Pass the Popcorn. Thanks for listening to the Backstory Podcast. I'm Kobe Cole. Get more of the backstory on our Patreon page with exclusive interviews, outtakes, and the Lost Controversial Backstory Podcast. You can only get here. Support on the Backstory Bonus Level.